0: Welcome back to Art House Garage. You are listening to episode eight. Thank you so much for being here. As always, or as usual, I'm joined by my wonderful friend and co-host, Drew Foote. Hey, Drew.
1: What's up, man? I love doing these. I just want to say yeah. that. I just, I just love this podcast. Thanks, Andrew, for making yes. this podcast happen.
0: Oh, well, thanks. It's always so enriched by your presence that we uh, listeners will know you were unable to join last time. But uh, the show went on somehow. But it's always better when you're here. <laughs> the
1: show must go on. No, it's, it's
0: just... true. Um,
1: mm-hmm. dude, what what movies have you watched this past week? Uh,
0: not a ton of movies. I watched a couple things for the podcast. Uh, for today, uh, we'll talk about what we're gonna watch. What we're gonna discuss today. I also watched for next week's uh, podcast. I watched a movie called Synecdoche, New York, which. Is That's very awesome. unique, and uh, we'll talk about it next week.
1: Can you say that five times fast? <laughs> yeah, that that <laughs> time.
0: Synec- <laughs> yeah, it's tricky. Synecdoche. Yeah, it's tricky. But then uh, me and you saw First Man together. Oh, yeah. What I'm curious, yeah. What are you... A few days out, what are your opinions?
1: I have thought about that movie a couple times, actually. I think... Um, yeah. Man, it's still so hard. There's so much. It's such a big movie.
0: Yeah, it's a lot. Um, I think right afterwards, I was... You know, I, I thought it was good, but maybe not great, but thinking about it more since then, it's kind of grown on me, and I think it really, the one thing I think that I like the most about it is it captures the culture at the time, and, like, why this was a big deal that someone yeah. was going to the moon, and, um, you know, it's stuff we hear about and have seen, you know, JFK's speech about it and that all that, but... Capturing like the zeitgeist or like the cultural feeling at the time, I thought was really well done.
1: Well, I love too that like I mean, all these movies. I mean, movies always do this, right? Walk the line, Ray. I mean, all these kind of like bi bi biopic biopic is that what it's called? Biopic. Biopic. Yeah.
0: I think it's biopic. I don't know. All these movies. It's a picture. That's a bio. Like a biopic. Yeah, 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 but it's also
1: epic too at the same
0: time. Oh, it's an epic. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Anyway, Um, uh, what about him?
1: But like they always kind of show the dark side of the things that those characters struggle with. Right. That's what makes them mm-hmm. interesting. And I really love yeah. that about this movie. Like I never knew anything about Neil Armstrong besides mm. he went to the moon, you know? Yeah. And like, of course it's not, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't account uh, any Hollywood movie made, film made by Hollywood or any film ever to be, you know, historically accurate 100% of the way, but it was just really neat to see. It was more than neat. It was really good to see that even someone that did something so great, like Mm -hmm. one of the greatest feats mankind has ever achieved. And to see his motivations behind it, to see Mm -hmm. him struggle even outside of the thing and to see how he was even, he even used the thing and an unhealthy way to cope with some really bad stuff that happened to him, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I really loved how it framed that, you know? Yeah. And I think it, it humanizes that character, Neil Armstrong, the mm-hmm. one of the only two people in the history of man and the history of humans to ever set foot on the moon, you know? Yeah
0: yeah and like the the culture of nasa too and like the, the stakes were really high like people died you know before you know it, there, I, there's a lot of that that the history i just hadn't thought about and it, it shows all that off yeah so i thought that was really good about it uh you also went and i haven't seen this but i want to bad times to the el royale what do you think of that
1: so i was really excited about this film there was a lot of like it, it had so much hype hmm because it's like, there was, you watch the previews and it's like, that looks so good, but I have no idea what it's about. And that, that kind of gets me really excited, not knowing what it's about. Yeah. And it was good. I really, there's several individual performances that are phenomenal. Like, mm-hmm. this is a movie of, of performances, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Like, that's one of the best things about this movie. You can want to go watch it for the performances. But the movie making as a whole, I think the beginning's really good and the ending is phenomenal. But there's kind of a lull in the middle that I was mm-hmm. really
0: hard to get through hmm i've heard yeah i've heard people say it was maybe too long a few different critics have seen say that yeah that's interesting i uh don't know much about it at all except all the performers that are in it but also it's directed by drew goddard who i i've only seen one other of his movies but i really liked it and it's uh cabin in the woods have you seen that
1: wait he did cabin in the woods
0: yeah same guy i'm pretty sure i'm gonna double check that right now but yeah
1: yeah well, I'm just, I'm not saying he didn't. I'm just saying that that's crazy that the same guy who Kevin Woods uh, did. What
0: do you think of Kevin uh, in the Woods?
1: I mean, it's a very interesting movie.
0: I love that movie.
1: <laughs> I <laughs> mean, I just think horror, like comedy horror is just an interesting genre. In
0: yeah, it's a hard like, thing like, to you know. do. But I, yeah. yeah, it's the, he was the director of that. It's the only other feature film he's done. He's done some uh, TV and stuff, but yeah, I love Kevin Woods, so I was, was excited to see what he did next and haven't seen it yet, of course. But
1: I, I think that the perform I mean, Jeff Bridges, phenomenal. Mm-hmm. John Hamm, wonderful performance. Like the whole time he's on screen, I mean, it's just I can't I can't stop do. just watching. <laughs> you know, it's just so good. I love John Hamm, yeah, he does a great job. Like, seriously. I don't want to give too much away, but John Hamm is he's the man. He's the MVP. Yeah, well, but what's crazy is I don't want to give too much away, but he's actually not in the movie that much—not as mm-hmm. much as you think he would
0: be. Interesting. All so, right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to the topic at hand.
1: Yeah. So tell me about the movie this week.
0: Yeah, the movie we watched, uh, that I watched and the guest watched is *The Maltese Falcon*. This is a classic movie. Uh, you know, so mm-hmm. I want Art House Garage to be, you know, classic art house and indie cinema. So this is definitely in the classic camp. Um, it is an older movie. Uh, from the forties and it's pretty well known. It's one of Humphrey Bogart's uh, kind of his breakout role. And we're going to go into a lot of all that, but it's a, it's a film noir or there's actually some debate about that too. We'll talk about that in the interview, whether it's classified as a noir or not. But in this discussion, we talk about what is film noir. So if that's something you've heard, but you never have been quite certain what that is, we get have a pretty good uh, discussion of, you know, how to define that and, and why, those movies are important, and why you'd want to watch them.
1: Yeah. Okay. So who's like? Uh, so you said Humphrey Humphrey Bogart yes, right, is Humphrey, the main yeah main actor in
0: this. Pretty big. So who else back is back in the day? Um, um, who
1: else is involved in this
0: one mary astor is the female lead and she um actually go michael who's my guest we'll talk about him in just a second but he goes uh he's actually really knowledgeable about the history of this and goes into her uh kind of her public persona as well and how that plays into the movie which is pretty interesting um, and then peter laurie is someone else who listeners may know and he's in this and he's uh just this kind of really weird presence but he's like a crazy good actor um but yeah so, so it's really great it's directed by john houston uh who went on to be really a big a big name director uh did a lot of other things and, and we'll talk about that in the, the discussion too but this is his first feature um and it, yeah this is kind of one of the greats uh, if you're you know wanting to see some of the bigger name classic movies this is a good one to watch
1: All right, Andrew, I want to know who is Michael Ferris and why are you having him on the show?
0: Michael Ferris is one of my very oldest friends. He and I made a lot of home movies. Home movies is not the word because these were, you know, film like stories. And we were the actors and they were incredible. Uh, I
1: bet they were. I bet they were. And ridiculous
0: and so silly. Like, uh, (laughs) yeah. There was a horror movie we made where he was shooting fake blood out of my mouth, like all, like all kinds of craziness that we did. I was remembering <laughs> earlier, <laughs> we did a, sort of a, a Spider-Man ripoff one time and I was, I played a scientist named Dr. Smirnoff. So that was it. Right? <laughs> uh, awesome. So we have a lot of history. This was junior high, high school. Um, And then since then, Michael, he's always been really into movies and into classic movies. He's become a filmmaker. And uh, so we made he actually made a few feature length things back in high school and kind of during college. But now he is working on a film that he's trying to take to festivals and everything. And he talks about that, too. I asked him at the end to give us some details there. But he uh, is a very talented filmmaker. His movie draws a lot of inspiration from the Maltese Falcon, actually. So there's some cool tie ins there. But uh, yeah, Michael is a really funny guy, very knowledgeable about cinema, and especially knowledgeable about this movie.
1: I love it. Well, I'm
0: excited. Let's listen to it. Let's do it. Without further ado, here is my discussion with Michael Ferris. Welcome, Michael Ferris, to Art House Garage. How are you doing today, Michael? I'm doing well. How are I'm you? I'm doing quite well. Thanks for being here. Yes, I'm excited. Yeah, so Michael and I know each other uh, from way back. Uh, high school junior high um he is a filmmaker and back in the day we made a lot of really goofy amazing and awesome videos and movies uh since then he has made feature-length movies and is working on um, a really great one right now but uh yeah so we've known each other for a while and um i uh wanted so this podcast I want to you know talk about art house and indie cinema but also classic cinema and so Michael is someone who a good friend of mine who I always knew Mm. was really into that kind of realm and really into uh, older movies and that definitely comes through in your work I can see that influence uh, in a really good way and so I I thought you were the perfect person to to bring on and uh, to choose a movie that could be Hopefully, that's sort of a gateway to people who have not seen a lot of classic movies or um, are intimidated by watching something that's black and white or um, something from many years ago. So, as we just discussed that, you chose this movie, The Maltese Falcon. So, tell me, why did you choose this movie and what? Uh, how many times have you seen it? When did you first see it? All of that.
2: Well, I I grew up, uh, my dad is a huge lover of classic movies, and so I grew up on TCM, and I I can't tell you the first time I saw this movie, but I'm sure it was, you know, before I was uh, in in my teens, I mean, probably 10 or 11, and I've seen it uh, at least 15 or 20 times over the years, Um, it is uh, considered a classic, and I believe it is a classic, and, and if you look at, Hollywood was so productive with how many films they were making per each studio per year that it's, it's easy uh, to get kind of lost in how many titles were made, but these are the kinds of movies that stood the test of time and that we're still talking about today. And I believe it's because the movie is just, if just looking at it, whether it's shot composition, the acting, it's got an all-star cast. Every single role is filled with an actor filled by an actor who is great in their own right, and then you put them into this, uh, into this drama um, of the detective uh, genre, and uh, just you kind of watch them play off each other, and it's brilliant to watch. And uh, I think it's a good gateway for folks who are coming to classic cinema because of its, its high quality, uh because of its uh its tone. It's uh, kinda gritty. Uh and and a lot of the films from that era may seem a little too um naive for today's mm. going on, too, I think. Too cleaned up or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think yeah, that that's a good point. It definitely as as the world changed uh going, you know, after World War Two and then through uh, through the fifties and then into just culturally through Vietnam. And, and then we, we hit now we're in, you know, uh, obviously you're jumping, we're jumping 30 or 40 years, but there's just, there's cultural shifts through, uh, through the last 60 to 80 years that, um, that people just become, I think a little bit more hardened. And, and mm-hmm. one of the huge, one of the uh, great praises of this film at the time was it's, It's hard-hitting and crisp and realistic dialogue. And these Mm. people are all somewhat morally ambiguous. Uh, They don't all seem to have one side. And so it was viewed as a a lot more realistic in terms of character portrayals. And I think that's something that people today can relate to and and maybe uh, buy in more into the world. Because, as you said, it's not so clean. It's not so goody-two-shoes there. There are two sides almost to every character in this story but you have Humphrey Bogart who is leading the way, who is your end to the story, who you're on his side, but he's got that look in his eye that you never really know where he's going to commit until that final, final scene.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah. So I, I had seen this once back in, I think probably junior high, uh, just cause I, it was, you know, it's a big title from back in the day. Um, and I think I, because it's one of Humphrey Bogart's big ones, I, his, his name probably is the reason I was even aware of it, but uh, watched that when, when I was back then with my family, but then uh, watched it again recently for this and really was kind of blown away by it. Like, it's it's really, like you mentioned, high quality, and uh, all the performances are incredible. Um, yeah, so I, I was very excited to watch this again. So I've heard, and I think there's some debate about this, that this is sort of the first film noir uh, can you speak to that?
2: It, there, there are a couple schools of thought on it, and if this is not considered the first film noir, it is definitely considered the first or or the proto or the template for film noir. Film noir emerged really heavily after World War II, when people were a little bit more cynical to the world. There was a colder outlook uh, after all the destruction, and then the, you had the the sense of paranoia that came with uh, with with the cold war Uh, and that really manifested in films where you had this sense that someone was out to get the hero and he was his own worst enemy. And there were a lot of psychological things that they explored in, in, in the period of time from maybe the late forties to late fifties, early sixties, where there's about a 10 year window of truly film noir that were just getting pumped out where the hero was his own worst enemy. And by the end of the movie, he had essentially done himself in. And uh, this movie, while it does not have that a uh, dramatic or tragic of an arc for its, for the hero uh, played by Humphrey Bogart, Sam Spade, it definitely has the elements of you've got the uh, stylistic black and white cinematography. Obviously, they had color at the time, but, but it, most movies still were being shot in black and white. But John Huston, the director, chose to go for a more stylized cinematography whereas a lot of the the studio movies at the time were kind of over lit uh very bland um lighting palette so shadows were not prominent and that sort of thing and and so it it gives this movie a lot more uh a, a, a better edge i think and and uh i think sucks you into the world more um and and also you, you do have a a the girl Mar- played by Mary Astor, um, who kind of sucks uh, Bogart into this world, this underworld. He's already a part of it uh, in his private investigation uh, adventures, but he's sucked even deeper uh, into this uh, labyrinth of of backstabbing and death that surrounds the Maltese Falcon. And so it definitely laid the groundwork. And then a lot of people will will just say or uh, film historians will say that bogart kind of set the mold for that leading detective that leading man Mm. who was cynical to the world who kind of was out for himself but still had his own personal code of ethics and uh and and so in obviously bogart such a tremendous actor had the screen presence and the in the dramatic ability to do that and so there are certainly elements um certainly elements that contribute to saying that this could be the first film noir or the the absolute first precursor
0: mm. that's interesting so i have never thought about like where the word noir probably comes from but so mm-hmm. that it, uh, you're saying at that point most of the black and white movies were just kind of brighter uh-huh. and a little more well-lit so yep. this was just blacker darker than other black and white movies that's yeah. very interesting and and, and just to, to piggyback on that um
2: andrew the um film noir actually came from i mean noir is comes from the french uh, for black and uh it, it that's where those cynical stories began and they made their way over to america and was really embraced by hollywood uh, late 40s after after uh world war 2 and in the, in the kind of the as the cold war began to heighten uh there with the with the paranoia and red scare and all that stuff that was going on um it it uh, it was embraced, and that's when it became. I I I couldn't tell you the exact day, but it, it it emerged after World War II that phrase uh, to describe these black film the the idea of the the tragedy uh, of a hero mm-hmm. that that was his own worst enemy, um, and kind of nothing went his way, and he but he was the agent of his own decline or demise.
0: Mm. So to kind of define noir, it has those darker colors, it has paranoia, and then also like the blackness of the plot, like meaning that has that sort of dark ending kind of thing. Or is there anything else that we need to know just about film noir in general?
2: Well, you know, usually there will be a femme fatale. We get the the word femme fatale from from that genre of film. It's Mm. uh, the girl who is seemingly uh, helpful or attractive and catches the eye of the hero, whether he is uh, single or not. And ignites or initiates him into the alternate world that he's drawn into, and that, and so you can see that very, you can see that loosely in the Maltese Falcon, but it gets even more intense. And uh, a lot of folks consider a movie called Double Indemnity, which was in 1944, the first true film noir because. Uh, the the lead actress in that movie draws the the, the male actor into her labyrinth of of, uh, of plots to kill her husband, and ultimately mm-hmm. uh, ultimately that does not work out well for him. And then so as you go through all of the all of the top uh, true film noirs that emerged out of the out of World War II through the end of the fifties, they all had some element of a, the femme fatale, the woman who uh, stepped in and introduced the guy and kind of <laughs> dragged him down um and they usually all had a, uh, a sad ending uh mm-hmm. or uh, which you might consider a ju- just ending but still sad in the sense that hollywood was not typically making you know the, a movie where the hero died at the end
0: yeah uh, interesting and so this one has a little bit more of a positive ending but I, mm-hmm. maybe mixed i guess yep yep so this uh you were telling me earlier is the first movie ever directed by john houston yes uh so what john- else did he
2: make so John Huston, uh, it was his first movie uh, that that he made. He he'd been a writer uh, for 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 years as a contract under contract to Warner Brothers, and he as his contract was coming up for renewal, he kind of said, "I I'll only continue to uh, to do this if you'll give me a movie." And I'm not sure how much leverage he truly had, but he had uh, written and given successful um, input and. Uh, writing of sergeant york which was a it is is considered a classic of its own a genre and then a movie called high sierra which humphrey bogart was also in uh and so he he was a tremendous writer and warner brothers had wanted to keep talent because in those days the studios had their their contracts were much more restrictive in terms of who, that if they had someone under the contract they were And the only way another studio could get them is if they worked out some sort of agreement or trade. Um, So whereas today we have actors working for Sony and uh, Disney and, uh, and uh, I guess Disney owns everybody now, but (laughs) pretty much, uh, but, but (laughs) there was a lot less, uh, there was a lot less uh, loose. uh, There's a lot less ability for an actor to go from studio to studio or a writer or director. So if you're Mm -hmm. under contract to a studio, you were, you were theirs. And so, Warner Brothers didn't want to lose John Huston. So I say, okay, fine. And likely they gave him a list of properties they own the rights to, and the Maltese Falcon was one of them. And he told his uh, secretary to get the book, the Maltese Falcon, and set up uh, and go through the book and do a scene, uh, essentially just scene by scene, list every scene in the book. And John Huston then goes through and he essentially writes the, the book into a script form. And there've been two mo- two versions of the Maltese Falcon made at that point, and not one neither one of them had adapted the book very closely at all. Um and so the one that we know and that is revered as a classic, the nineteen forty-one Maltese Falcon, is the closest to the source material, although it does uh does negate a, a uh or get rid of a, a subplot involving Gutman's daughter, uh it it is the most true to that uh that book, John Huston would go on to make uh, several movies, uh, which which would culminate uh, with the uh, the Treasure of the Sierra Madre, um, and uh, not culminate in the sense of his filmography, but he that was the most critically appraised and once won Oscars for that. He also made the African Queen with Bogart. Uh, he, uh, which again is another uh, critically praised movie uh he had a long and lengthy career and ended up at, even in being a, an actor in the movie Chinatown uh actually was which was kind of a resurgence of film noir in the 70s yeah well, that's cool.
0: um
2: and uh but anyway tremendously talented guy and he went through and he went through every scene and set up all the shots before they before they got to shooting he had it all storyboarded he had it all planned out and so seventy-five percent of the movie was, was already planned and shot and ready to be shot before they even, you know, started rolling film. Uh and, and he said that he's quoted as saying essentially that if uh you know Bogart or Mary Astor or any of the other actors had a better idea for blocking or 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 how to go about doing a scene that he would yield to them. Uh but he but he had these meticulous notes on exactly how to to get what he needed and they had a 6 week shooting schedule and a $300,000 budget and so they were they were kind of on tight tight uh, reins there with Warner Brothers and and they executed and it's a movie classic now.
0: Yeah, wow. That's a that brings up Humphrey Bogart just as a, as an entity in Hollywood. So this is one of his earliest movies, is that true? It
2: it is it is probably
0: it is the movie that it launched him to
2: that international stardom uh he had been at Warner brothers for years as well, but he was known as the guy who was solid, but who, who would ultimately die in the, uh, in the last act. And he was usually a bad guy. And he was, was in three of, of uh, three movies before this that are, are, are some of my favorites with the roaring twenties with uh, James Cagney in 1939 high Sierra, which was in, in 41 as well. And then another movie called dead end, which was, actually based on a stage play and in all of those movies he plays a criminal or a tough guy that ends up getting killed at the end he's also in angels with dirty faces uh which is another great uh gangster movie from the 30s but he died in all of them and uh he wasn't the first choice to play this role and uh he he george raft who was offered it, ended up declining and and john houston was ecstatic that he could get bogart and uh and this this launched him into the kind of the public consciousness as a leading man. He was not your typical uh, strong. Uh, you said again a goody two shoes type guy. He had that that cynical world view that made him relatable to people, and you just you just wanted to be him. And so out of that, he he set the mold for that type of character, and then went on in it to have a lengthy and and uh, historic career.
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I so not being someone who's incredibly familiar with Humphrey Bogart, I was kind of watching this with fresh eyes and trying to figure out why is why is he such a big deal? And what what made him great? And um, there was that there's this kind of sinister under the edge, like he can go from like being, you know, kind and tender to to someone, but to having this like sinister smile almost and kind of flips that switch really interesting. But like, it was yeah. something I noticed, but, and then he also, you know, in this movie and probably others is incredibly witty. And, uh, I think about the way he's, uh, like kind of making fun of that, that hired gun the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Becky's so cruel to him, but it's like, it's really fun to watch. And then also his wittiness with, uh, with Sydney Greenstreet's character too. Yep. Kind of he, my favorite things about it. Go ahead. Well,
2: he, he, uh, in every scene, you expect him to have, to always have the upper hand. He's always got something up his sleeve. Mary Astor said she loved working opposite him because he looked, he he would look at her as if he was looking through her. And and if you just go back and watch the scenes and you watch Bogart's performance, he's, he is, he is, a lot of people say good acting is, <laughs> I say a lot of people, but, But but there's a saying that good acting is reacting and Bogart reacts the whole movie. He is surveying. He's studying everyone as they speak. And, you know, when he gets into the 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 verbal bout with with Gutman initially, when he goes into his room and and says, I'll be back later. And he puts on this big act that he's mad and then he walks out down the hallway and he's grinning because he always has an angle to play and so you you always had the idea that well he's not out yet he he's got he's going to come back um and and that's that's really cool to have in a hero because even when it looks like uh he may be down for the count no he's got another trick up his sleeve
0: hmm. yeah that's really interesting too yeah you think about <clears throat> what you were just saying about his his intense stare i i didn't think about that but that's definitely something he's doing like the way he is yeah, his his gaze, I guess, is something mm-hmm. that's a powerful part of that. Really he internal
2: he's internalizing everything that that the actor he's working opposite is saying or mm-hmm. doing, and the whether he is, I just as an example, when when Mary Astor is in the opening scene with he and he and uh, his partner Miles Archer, uh, she's she's pulling out money and handing it to them as she reaches into her purse. Bogart looks over to Archer as as if to say. Are you seeing how much money she's mm-hmm. she's given us? And then she, he looks back at her and and it, that's a that's that's a decision by by John Houston to not show the action of her reaching into her person, rather the reaction of those characters observing just how important this is to her. It's not just that she's paying a lot of money, as he later says in the in the in the um, a few scenes later, he says we knew you were paying us a lot of money, uh, so it probably wasn't true, but you were paying us enough to not care that it mm-hmm. wasn't true. And so, but he's internalizing all that and his reactions are showing us that he understands there's more to this.
0: Yeah. And I think about too, like how difficult just an actor's job is to react to things as if you never heard it with <laughs> something like his first conversation with Sydney Greenstreet's character, because it's so meticulous, like the word play that's going on and, yep. uh, but it feels so natural. And I think that's probably both of their, to their credits because, uh, yes, yeah, so I think Sydney Greenstreet's performance is probably my probably my favorite thing about this was their dialogues. Every time they were talking to each other,
2: the, the cool thing about Sydney Greenstreet is I'm not sure if you came across this in any of your, your research, but this is his first film. Really, he had he had acted on stage for 40 years, but it was his that scene in the living room where they he says I, I like a man who knows who continues to drink i like a man who knows mm. xyz you know that's his first scene in front of a film camera and he would go on to make be a be a tremendous uh character actor in hollywood uh, but that the, the Maltese Falcon was his first
0: movie and he he knocked it out of the park yeah he, it's such a pleasure to watch him and uh but then i think that close second is bogart talking with mary Astor and her performance because she you find out pretty early on is kind of duplicitous and or two-faced to some degree and so you never know quite what to trust from her and i think uh i i thought about like how much modern movies like like the oceans 11 movies like how much that borrows from something like this or the influence of that but yeah her performance is really Great as well.
2: She 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 does tremendously well, and I have had mixed feelings in the past about her performance. Uh, but the more you watch it, the more you really appreciate that duplicity, as you said, uh, and and how she really does. Uh, and you know, there's a scene in her apartment where she's attempting to feign the innocence and beg mm. Bogart to to be gracious and to forgive her and to please help her and she's just selling it and and Bogart's not having any of it so it's mm. it's a great scene that demonstrates both of their uh, ability Bogart's ability to perceive and her ability to try to pull the wool over someone's eyes and if it wasn't Bogart she probably would have succeeded um she she interestingly had a pretty uh, scandalous off-screen uh trial um regarding custody for some, for her, for her kids, uh, right. in the mid thirties. And so that it was, it was kind of public consciousness, uh, her, some things that she had diary excerpts that were released to the press that were pretty, pretty scandalous. And so wow. the, the, the public had a, a perception of her that probably played into her, her being duplicitous, her sultriness, her having some hot stuff, uh, that, that elevates her at that time too, that, that is, I think is important if you know that it can elevate her, uh, her presence in the film. Wow. That's
0: super interesting. Yeah. Well, then as far as performances go, I also have to give a shout out to Peter Laurie. He's so, so good. and so fun to watch. And I think, uh, I was trying to think of like, who, who can I think of? That's a modern actor that he reminds me of. And I came up with, um, uh, Steve Buscemi a little bit, kind of like yeah. the, kind of the weird, uh, kind of the funny way he looks a little bit, but like his um, intense personality too. Uh, I don't know, he's he's really fun to watch.
2: That's about as good as I could I could come up with too. That's that's a good call. Peter Lorre was a great uh, character actor who played for many years. He had his own uh, series called Mister Moto, where he <laughs> was a detective, uh, and he had multiple movies out of that. And uh, but he was always cropping up in these movies. And anytime he showed up, you knew you were going to have
0: a solid performance. Yeah. Uh, well, another point that, you know, I was thinking about earlier, um, you said, so this was the third version of this movie of the Maltese Falcon. And the book came out in 10 years, basically the book had come out 10 years before.
2: Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it was originally serialized uh, and, uh, and it came come out late at the very end of the, uh, uh, the twenties, or, or if, if not, nineteen thirty, thirty one, and it was immediately, uh, supposedly, Dashiell Hammett, the author of the Maltese Falcon novel, wrote it specifically to be bought by Hollywood, hmm. and it was, it was almost immediately, uh, immediately bought and and then produced.
0: Yeah, I just think think about, uh, you know, as we were talking earlier, people decry so much today. Oh, there's everything's a remake, everything's a sequel, but apparently that's always been the case. If you look at th- this story.
2: Yes. Hollywood, uh, if they have the rights to a particular piece of, of work, whether it's a novel or a comic strip, uh, they will they will attempt to <laughs> cash in on it. And, <laughs> over and, and over. The, the first couple versions of this movie were were kind of uh, representations of the era They were made. The 1931 version had some very broad acting in it. It was reminiscent of the silent era. Uh, these although it was audio, they did have dialogue and audio. Uh, sound uh, it the, the, still the acting was kind of more um, over the top and uh, it still was not a true following of the book. Um, and it was kind of, uh, kind of a farce and miscast. And uh, it, especially when compared to the one we know the 1936 version uh, was essentially a, a, a star vehicle for Betty Davis. And they rewrote the, they essentially it was extremely loosely based on the Maltese Falcon uh, and and rewrote it for her character to kind of be the lead. And it was more in the vein of a, these uh, kind of a comedy, romantic comedy uh, stories like uh, similar to It Happened One Night with uh, Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert. Um, but it was which were really popular in the mid 30s because the code had just been. Uh, in, for, uh, in enacted and enforced which kind of set some limits on the kind of um, the the potential for what they considered riskier uh, language or suggestive themes and that sort of thing uh, and so it it got a little bit more screwball and then we hit nineteen forty one where they say let's just make this right out of the right out of the book
0: hmm. that's really interesting well as we kind of come to a close I was going to see if do you have any other just Favorite moments. I have one quote that I really liked, and so this kind of shows. Um, so we've been talking about how it's like hard-edged and all that, but it really—if you've never seen this movie, it's really funny. Like I spent a lot of time laughing, uh, especially mostly at things Bogart was saying. Um, mm-hmm. There's one—I can't remember who. Someone gets slapped. I can't remember exactly the situation, but then he says, "When you're slapped, you'll take it and you'll like it." Uh, that just really. <laughs> yeah, he laugh, tells Joe
1: Cairo that. Yeah, that's
0: what it is. Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. That's great. Well, do you have any other Bogart- favorite
0: things in it?
2: Yeah. Um, anytime Bogart is is uh, is kind of talking smack to um, to Wilmer um, and uh, yeah, there's so the, there's a scene in the hall where Wilmer has his his gun. He's got two guns on Bogart and then it's described beat for beat in the book this exact way. And somehow mm-hmm. they managed to do it uh, where Bogart gets the slip on him and takes both guns from him and then points them back at him and point <laughs> and leads him into his own room uh one of my i love when uh bogart is uh, he's held at gunpoint by joel cairo and he says i must ask you to uh to place your hands behind your head i will now search your apartment <laughs> and uh, bogart gets the gun from him knocks him out he then looks at his wallet and everything and uh joel cairo comes to and he asks for his gun back and and the minute, the second he gets that gun back, he points it at Bogart and says, "I must ask you to put your hands behind your head." It's, and so he's going to search that apartment, and, and Bogart just laughs at him and says, "Go yeah. ahead." Um, it's just That's uh, a great moment, and and it's it's they're all magnified by the the, the quality of acting, hmm. um, and uh, I really think this is a perfectly cast film uh, because every actor had gravitas and. Uh, screen presence and an ability to deliver the lines fast crisp and uh it's just a pleasure to watch
0: Hmm. totally agree i highly encourage everyone to go and watch it um i'm not sure it's streaming at least on filmstruck is where i watched it but you can rent it i'm sure everywhere but uh so please go and watch this and tell us what you think. Uh, But Michael, before you go, would you care to tell us anything about your current production? Are, Are you sharing the title of it or where are you with that?
2: I am currently uh, finishing up a movie called The Rock of Gibraltar, which actually The Rock of Gibraltar is a total homage to the Maltese Falcon in terms mm. of title. And the 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 topic or the MacGuffin in the movie is this rock that is worth a tremendous amount of money that the villain is going after. Uh, I've been shooting it for the last few years and I'm editing it now. Uh, we've shot it multiple places all over the country in Ohio and Missouri and Oklahoma and Arkansas here. And uh, and it, I'm really excited about it. it. I I I have drawn on my love of classic movies and grown up on TCM and all those gangster and film noir movies that I love to uh, to make it. And I'm really excited about it. And I can't wait for everyone to see it. No, no uh, hard release date or anything yet, but I intend to be showing it to the public next year
0: well i'm very I've actually seen some test footage, and it's great, so everyone should get excited. Um, I would love to have you back on the podcast whenever it does come out and we can uh chat about it.
2: Well, I would love to do it. This has yeah. been fun.
0: thanks well, thanks so much for being here, and uh, we will talk to you next time. All right, thank you. All right, that was it. That was awesome, Andrew. Thanks. Yeah, I was really uh, pleased with how it went. You know, Michael's a like, super old friend of mine. And so we just have like a rapport. But I uh, honestly, I was impressed. <laughs> like, he has a lot of knowledge about that movie. And, um, you know, we haven't talked in depth about that before. So I'm like, wow, you really studied this a lot. So anyway, yeah, I, I thought it went really well. It was very interesting to, for me personally.
1: I just love how you guys are making like homemade movies yeah. when you're like young kids and now that you went your separate ways and you both found your way into film yeah. and now you're back together it's brought you back together Andrew. <laughs> I'm so happy yeah. <laughs> it's good so okay so here's a here's a weird question i want to know now right. so if you and michael travel back in time to the 40s and you guys are going to be a part of the maltese falcon the film like you're going to be a part of the film what roles or parts would you guys play who would you guys oh wow um (laughs) uh,
0: that's a really funny question i think (laughs) michael would have to be bogey he'd have to be humphrey bogart he you know i i realized like after watching this like michael he he tells in in the interview that he's seen this like 10 or 11 times at least and uh so i think that from a young age he probably like his personality is probably deeply tied to Humphrey Bogart <laughs> to some degree <laughs> uh, I'm sorry Michael I'm psychoanalyzing you now but um I definitely <laughs> see him in that role and for myself um honestly I'd go Sidney Greenstreet the sort of the main villain guy in this and because they have such a funny really like the conversations they have together are hilarious and and they love this banter so I could we could do that we could pull that off we should remake that Michael
1: yeah, there you go. All right, well, um for all our listeners, we'd love to know what classic film do you love? Why do you love it? And what's a what's another film that you guys would like us to do an interview about or talk about? Yeah. Let us know. Which one
0: should we discuss next? I love it well thank you guys so much for listening you can hit us up on facebook twitter instagram and stardust we are at arthouse garage and all those places i will also link to letterboxd for me and drew in the show notes and you can email me andrew at arthousegarage.com thanks so much drew for being here Absolutely. and we'll talk to you next time thanks guys